my name is Janelle, and this morning we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of John. So if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to John chapter 7, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 24. Before we get started, I have a question. Has anybody heard of the name MacArthur Wheeler? No? Okay, what about Clifton Johnson? Okay, great. So these two guys were buddies, and in 1995, in Pennsylvania, they robbed a bank. So I didn't know if anyone had heard this story before. So they go into the bank in broad daylight without wearing a mask or anything, and they robbed the bank. And they weren't wearing any disguises. So it was really easy to see them on the surveillance camera. But actually, they thought they were wearing a disguise. What they had on their face was lemon juice. Does anybody know why they would put lemon juice on their face? How they'd get to that? Okay, so lemon juice is used to make disappearing ink on paper. So they said, well, if this makes paper disappear, guess what will happen to my face in those cameras if I put lemon juice on it? So they put lemon juice on their face. This is real. I was watching someone. Yeah, this is real. And uh, in 1995, they go into a bank with lemon juice on their face, really confident that no one is going to be able to identify them because they're going to be invisible. So this turned out to be a study. They were arrested very quickly and they were shocked. Like, how did you know it was me? I had the juice was literally what they said. So uh, they were shocked when they were, were found out. But it ended up they ended up doing a study on this called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And this is an effect where somebody has a lot of confidence and very little knowledge. And the combination will lead you to do some really uh, interesting things. Maybe not smart things, not wise things. So this is an example of that. And we're going to be seeing that play out in the verses today in the interactions that Jesus has with people because they're going to have a lot of confidence in what they're saying and what they're doing but not a lot of knowledge to back it up so that's what we're going to be going through today in chapter seven last week in chapter six we learned about the commitment that was tested in long, uh, among Jesus's followers a lot of people walked away from Jesus and his ministry because Jesus was focusing a little less on miracles and he was saying things like, if you want to follow me, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. And not only did Jesus say that, but he didn't clarify that it was a metaphor. He just let the uncomfortableness hang there and watched everyone walk away like, see ya. So he turns to the 12 disciples after saying this and after losing all of these followers and he asks them, do you want to leave too? Do you want to go as well? And Peter, Simon Peter responds with the famous reply, Lord, to whom would we go? You offer the words of eternal life. It's a beautiful moment and picture in the midst of this discouraging scenario. And what's interesting about the verses from last week is that it says that Jesus knew from the beginning who was genuine and who was not. And so while to the disciples, it may have looked like people changed their mind after Jesus said this, in reality, All it did was expose what was already in their heart. It seems like Jesus would rather have a few genuine people follow him than thousands who are just putting on an outward show. So let's keep that context in mind as we read verses 1 through 9 this morning. And go ahead and keep it out uh, with your Bible if you have it, because we're going to be referencing back to it. So verse 1 says, After this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters. And Jesus's brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe him. Jesus replied, 
Now is not the right time for me to go, but you can go anytime. The world can't hate you. And he says that because he's saying you're already part of what the world is doing. You're blending in just fine. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. So he says, you go on. I'm not going to the festival. Uh, Some Jewish translations or uh, ancient translations say, I'm not going to the festival yet. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind because later on we're going to see something else. I'm not going to the festival because my time has not yet come. After saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee. So right off the bat, we see Jesus's brothers have plans to fix Jesus's public image. I mean, it's kind of funny because we don't hear about the brothers a whole lot up until this point. They are mentioned in the other gospels. We know they exist, but I imagine at this point, like the 12 disciples and Jesus are gathered together, like, okay, what are we going to do? There's a festival, but everyone's trying to kill you. And I imagine the brothers like over on a couch, like, you know, you should do. I got an idea. (laughs) Jesus, everybody just left and I know how to fix it. We can get you famous again. We can get us famous again. I mean, you, you famous again, because they went from being associated with the number one act in the country to becoming at risk of becoming nobodies again. Because in the minds of Jesus's brothers, the problem was that Jesus was not as famous as he used to be. And that makes sense that Jesus' Jesus's brothers don't really seem worried about Jesus' life being threatened. Like that's not coming up in their argument at all. But they do seem worried about getting him back to celebrity status. And verse 4 is heartbreaking if you have it in there. Because it shows that while they may be around Jesus, they still don't get it. In verse 4, it says, you can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. First of all, that last phrase is really eerily similar to what the devil said to Jesus in the temptation of the wilderness. If you can do this, then do it. But you almost wonder if Jesus was thinking, I can't become famous? You think that's what I'm doing here? You think the goal of all of these miracles is to make me a celebrity? I mean, we have to think about this. The brothers went from being associated with the number one act in the country, like following the Beatles, to losing a ton of followers, and they don't want to become nobodies again. Desperate to gain their momentum, they come up with a great plan in their minds to fix it. But what are they trying to fix? Are they trying to fix the ministry? Are they trying to help fix the heart, the people Jesus came to serve? Let's remember the context of these verses. Last week in chapter 6, Jesus exposed what was in the hearts of his followers. He exposed who was serious about following Jesus and who wasn't. He really didn't change anybody's minds. He just exposed what was already there. So what we read, and especially in verse 4, needs to be used as a mirror to our own hearts, exposing what's there. We have to ask ourselves, what are we hoping to get out of our relationship with Jesus? That's the question that Jesus is forcing people to confront in the previous chapter and this one. So let's be honest with ourselves about that. Let's ask ourselves that question. Verse 4 shows the brother's desire to elevate their ego, which is a normal desire that we all have. Our ego is trying to protect us from feeling like we don't matter. Our ego can try to protect us from feeling like we're worthless. 
Okay, I'm going to be honest here. I know for me, I feel like I've got this whole thing figured out when the room in here is packed. When it's overflowing, I'm like, I've really done it, haven't I? But when there's a lot of empty seats, my ego steps in and it questions. It questions who I am. And there's a real temptation when there's a lot of empty seats for me to want to do PR for Jesus, but really for me to make myself seem look a lot more cool or attainable. Obviously, it's never going to happen, so it's fine. But there's a real temptation church leaders have to fight against because our ego says when this place feels empty, we're not good enough anymore. And we see this played out in the larger church in America too. People are leaving the church in huge numbers and it can often seem like the plan to fix it is similar to the plan that the brothers had. All we need is better PR for Jesus. And then people will want church again. I say this because there's a tendency that we have to make these problems seem like they're about Jesus when really they're about us. Are the brothers interested in trying to get people healed and helped? Are they wanting to share God's plan and God's heart for restoration for all people and his plan to set all things right? Are they interested in showing compassion to those who would otherwise be overlooked? No, they want the magic show and the cheering fans in the name of Jesus. So we have to check our motives too. We do. Are we interested in trying to get people healed and helped? Are we interested in showing compassion to the marginalized groups in society? Are we interested? Are we, or are we trying to make ourselves look good in the name of Jesus? Are we trying to make our church look good in the name of Jesus? Asking this question, what are we trying to, what are we hoping to get out of our relationship with Jesus is not likely going to change our heart, but reveal what's already there. We can be brave enough to ask ourselves this question because we know Jesus is not going to change who he is or accommodate who he is based on our selfish motives. Jesus is who he is. We have the option to take him as he is or leave him. But he's not going to change his mission for our sake and for our ego. So let's really ask ourselves, what are we hoping to get out of our relationship with Jesus? No one can answer this for us. None of us should try to answer this for our neighbor. I know what so-and-so thinks. No, just us. This is a mirror we hold up to ourselves. We must look at our own hearts and our own motives and answer honestly honestly hold ourselves accountable we must be willing to check our motives and see how they line up with what jesus offers in the gospel because there is a chance we are trying to get jesus to offer something he never said he would so let's keep reading in verse 10 uh there we go But after his brothers left for the festival, Jesus also went, though secretly staying out of public view. The Jewish leaders tried to find him at the festival and kept asking if anyone had seen him. There was a lot of grumbling about him among the crowds. Some argued he's a good man, but others said he's nothing but a friend, a fraud who deceives the people. But no one had the courage to speak favorably about him in public. For they were afraid of getting in trouble with the Jewish leaders. 
So I love how Jesus does a speech about how he's not going to the festival and then goes to the festival. <laughs> but that's where I wanted to clarify earlier. Does say yet. Does anybody else hear that or am I going crazy? <laughs> Okay, Um, so I love how Jesus does that. But the difference is that his brothers wanted him to go with their plan of being a big celebrity with thousands of people. And Jesus' plan is to go in secret. And while he's there, people are talking about Jesus, but they won't say his name and they won't speak favorably about him because they're afraid of the Jewish leaders who are also there. So we see immediately an imbalance of power in this situation. And we also see the Jewish leaders blocking people from getting to Jesus. They're hindering them. So Judaism had three feasts centered on agricultural lifestyle. There's three times that people are going to Jerusalem and we can assume uh, three times a year. And we can assume that Jesus did this three times a year since his birth. The first one's Passover. That's the big one. We know that one. There's Pentecost and Tabernacles. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is uh, when the harvest of the autumn crop was going to be celebrated. And so because the crop had to be protective, protected, they built these little temporary shelters over the crop. And this was when they remembered their time in the desert for the 40 years wandering the desert with Moses back in Numbers and the temporary shelters they lived in at that time. So not only are they praising God for the grain and the 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 harvest, but they're also using this time to remember back what it was like in the desert. And so something that we might miss uh, as uh, American Christians today is verse 12. There's something that first century Jewish audience would, a connection they would make in verse 12 that we might miss. So in verse 12, John describes the people as what? Grumbling. So they're remembering their time back in the desert. And what were they doing in the desert? Grumbling, So they're, they're making that connection. They're seeing this cycle repeated. Well, we might just kind of overlook that part. So this tells us, John is showing us again, as he has been doing throughout the gospel, a cycle that has been continuing since the desert, and he's showing Jesus' disruption to that cycle. Okay, so let's keep that in mind. Let's keep reading. Oh, this was... Sorry. <laughs> this was to give you a great visual. I had it in my brain. Now you can have it in yours. So we'll come back to that. Sorry. Okay, then midway through the festival, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. The people were surprised when they heard him. How does he know so much when he hasn't been trained, they asked. Okay, we're going to pause real quick for a second. At that time, when you'd go and speak uh, at a temple or things like that, you would start your teaching by, as rabbi so-and-so said, and you'd be quoting the rabbi who taught you. So when Jesus went up, he didn't quote a rabbi. He just started speaking. And people were immediately could tell that he knew a lot. Like that part was very clear. This guy clearly knows a lot. But what wasn't clear was how he knew that when he hadn't been trained. That's how they knew immediately that he hadn't been trained. So let's keep reading and see how Jesus answers them. So Jesus told them, my message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. Those who speak for themselves want glory only for themselves. But a person who speaks to honor the one who sent him speaks the truth, not lies. Moses gave you the law, but none of you obeys it. In fact, you're trying to kill me. So he just tells them. (laughs) There he goes. Jesus, very honest. Uh, So here Jesus is saying that his credibility comes straight from God. His comes straight from the source. It supersedes all authority on earth and it comes direct from the source of wisdom. And this is what we find in the gospel. And this is what we're going to see here. That when Jesus was doing miracles, people questioned him. 
and they wanted to know why he wouldn't do more. And when Jesus was talking about himself and describing himself, people questioned him and they didn't like the way he described himself. And when Jesus taught from the scriptures, people questioned him and they wanted to know on whose authority he could say these things. And that leads us to the question, what does Jesus need to prove in order for us to believe in him? Jesus is doing everything right, and it is still not enough for most people. He's doing everything right, and everywhere he goes, he's questioned for what he does. But Jesus, as he so often does, he turns the table. He turns the tables on this way of thinking, and he cuts to the heart by what he says in verse 17. If you have it in your Bibles, you can see it. It says, anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or merely my own. This is Jesus telling the crowd to prove their hearts. This is Jesus telling us to prove our hearts. Do we want to know the will of God or not? Is this about us or is this about God? Because if it's about us and making sure that we get what we want, then Jesus will never be enough for us. It will never be enough miracles. It will never be enough of a perfect life. And our happiness, there will never be enough for us to ever be satisfied. And I honestly think this is a contributing factor to why so many people have left the church in America. Because of what the church in America has advertised the gospel as. Come to our church and you'll be happy. Come to our church and your marriage will be okay. Come to our church, follow our rules, give us your money, and you'll get whatever you want. And if you want me to be really honest, maybe some of you are like, no, we're good. But I'm going to do it. I have the microphone. Uh, The American church has been far too complicit, far too complicit in promoting a self-centered gospel that really did not have a whole lot to do with Jesus. It had to do with making us look and feel good in the name of Jesus. And it wasn't real. And it wasn't true. And what's unfortunate about that is that people walked away feeling like it was because of something they did wrong that they didn't get those things. Or worse, they thought it was because of something God did wrong because they didn't get those things. But it wasn't real. Here's what's real. This is not about our happiness. This is about remembering who we are and serving the God who created us. This is about trusting that Jesus's way is the best way, even when it doesn't make sense to us. This is about submission to God, sacrificial love for our neighbor and believing that Jesus' death on the cross was powerful enough to save all of us. Let's keep reading in verse 20. So Jesus, as we said, ended with verse 19, calling everybody out saying, and you're trying to kill me. Like you thought I didn't know, but I know. And here's what the crowd says. You're demon possessed. Who's trying to kill you? They're so sweet, aren't they? Uh, So they're not actually saying that they think Jesus is demon possessed. That would be like, you're crazy. You know, so you're crazy. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus replied, I did one miracle on the Sabbath and you were amazed. 
But you work on the Sabbath too when you obey Moses' law of circumcision. Actually, this tradition of circumcision began with the patriarchs long before the law of Moses. For if the correct time for circumcising your son falls on the Sabbath, you go ahead and do it as not to break the law of Moses. So why should you be angry with me for healing a man on the Sabbath? Look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. So this is a fun interaction here because when Jesus says you're trying to kill me, the crowds don't respond like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. That sounds really scary. They're like, you're crazy. We just met you. Who's trying to kill you? And this is when we realize that Jesus has not just been talking to the crowds at the temple. He's also talking to the religious leaders who are among the crowds. He knows they're there. He knows they're listening. And he's talking directly to them. He's on a mission. Jesus is on a mission of exposing the truth of what is in people's hearts. And now he's exposing the hearts of the religious leaders who want to kill him. And ignoring the response from the crowd, Jesus is direct in saying what he came to the temple to say. Jesus references a few chapters back. I mean, it wasn't chapters for them. It was time, but we say chapters. And Jesus references a few chapters back when he healed a man on the Sabbath, a man who couldn't walk for years. And he tells him to get up, stand up, pick up his mat and go. But he did it on the Sabbath, a day that was meant for holy rest. And the religious leaders got angry because healing somebody counted under the umbrella of practicing medicine and practicing medicine counted under the umbrella of work and working was no on the Sabbath. So they said, because Jesus broke the Sabbath by healing a man that he needed to be killed. That was their justification to start their plans for killing him. You know, you can uh, be in an argument with somebody and maybe the conversation gets interrupted and you stop the argument and you think like that's done only for a few weeks later, the person you're arguing with brings it back up. Like you thought I forgot. You know how people do that? I never do that. (laughs) Why are you laughing? I've never done it one time. No, I I do it all the time. I'm very good at it. Um, But I do think that this is almost what Jesus is doing. Like you thought I forgot what started this whole killing talk. You thought I forgot, but he goes back to the heart of where it all began. So Jesus goes on to tell them an example of how the religious leaders also break the Sabbath, but they break the Sabbath in order to follow another law. So in order to follow one law, the other one's been broken. And when the religious leaders do it, they justify it. It makes sense to them. But when Jesus did it, they saw it as a reason for death. Do we see the hypocrisy here? So looking at what Jesus addresses with the religious leaders and the hypocrisy that he is dealing with, we have to ask ourselves, when it comes to the law, what is Jesus telling us to prioritize? Let's think about this. Was Jesus denying that he broke the Sabbath? Did he tell the religious leaders, you were mistaken, that wasn't me? Does he deny it? No, he doesn't deny it. He doesn't deny it because he says that what he was doing was still within God's heart for the people and his plans for restoration. Jesus, we see Jesus living in the gray area of the overlapping rules because he knows God's heart. And he knows that healing someone, even on the Sabbath, is well within his understanding of God's true priorities. Right? Glad we all agree. So (laughs) what does he say to the religious leaders then? Does he condemn them for breaking the law, for breaking the Sabbath? Does he condemn them for breaking one law in order to follow another? 
Does he say, you broke the Sabbath and I caught you and I'm here to tell you in front of everybody? No, he doesn't. What is Jesus really confronting here? The hypocrisy. And it kind of makes you wonder. Kind of makes you think, is hypocrisy worse than breaking the laws themselves? Because the hypocrisy was trying to conceal what was in their heart. And all along, Jesus is on a mission of exposing the heart. Their heart was not set on doing what God wanted. It was set on making themselves look good. And if they had their heart set on God and doing what God wanted, then they would have been able to clearly see that Jesus, the good in the miracle that Jesus did on the Sabbath, that would have been crystal clear to them. But instead, all they could see was a way to make themselves look better. Jesus is telling them and he's telling us to look beneath the surface so we can judge correctly. Look beneath the surface of these religious leaders so we can judge their motives correctly. Look beneath the surface of the laws and what they're trying to bring out in us so we can judge correctly the best way to follow them. These laws are meant to help us find our way back to understanding God and the original intent that he had for our lives. He intended for us to have a day of rest on the Sabbath. How cool that our God wants us to take time to rest. I mean, that is so counterculture to the world that we live in. But this was a God from Moses giving that law for a day of rest. But he also has it in his plan to bring holy restoration to God's people And so the question is, can we do both? Jesus thought so. The last thing I want to say before we close here is earlier I mentioned ego wanting to step in and helping us with fill in the blank, whatever, fame, money, success, family, to reinforce that we matter and that we're good enough. And we see the religious leaders here. They had an ego working overtime that blinded them to the goodness of Jesus standing right in front of them. But Jesus is offering us something so much more stable than an ego, than our ego. He's offering himself. And the difference between our ego and Jesus is that Jesus provides an unchanging and permanent truth about who we are. That we are valuable to God. That we matter We have a part to play in this story and that we're lovable. We are lovable. If we can remember that, if we can remember that, then we might find that there's a whole lot less in this world that we need in order to be okay. So as we leave here today, let's not be afraid to ask the difficult questions that Jesus confronts us with. Let's not be afraid to ask the difficult questions that shed light on how we honestly feel. Let's ask ourselves, what are we hoping to get out of our relationship with Jesus? Are we walking into this with misplaced confidence in what Jesus could and should be doing for us? Are we entering our relationship with humility and a promise to follow Jesus wherever he goes? Let's ask ourselves what Jesus needs to prove in order for us to believe in him. Do we need one more miracle? 
Or has Jesus already done enough? Did he do enough before we were even born? And lastly, let's look at the heart of Jesus and the ministry and examine what it is we should be prioritizing when it comes to the law. Should we get rid of all of it? Or should we keep some of them, like don't murder and don't steal? And how do we balance the laws that at first glance and surface reading can seem to contradict each other? Let's not be discouraged if we don't have all the answers to those questions. The journey of discovery is the best part. We get to spend our days asking God these questions and looking to him for wisdom and looking to the scriptures for wisdom. I truly believe God will meet us there and guide us on how it is we can be living as true followers of Jesus. Right on? Okay, cool. So today's communion Sunday, if the band would like to come up to the front. Uh, We don't do the festivals like they did in the Old Testament or the pilgrimage to certain places, but we do have a few traditions that we hold on to pretty tight, and that is communion being one of them. So communion is what we remember what Jesus said in Matthew 26. If you want to go to Matthew 26, you can, but I'm going to read it. It's verses 26 through 29. And it says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I got it. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks to them, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So this is when Jesus explains what he meant in John 6 when he said, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. I imagine the relief the disciples felt when Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood. Thank goodness. (laughs) But these are the symbols for how we remember Jesus's death on the cross. This is when we remember who we are and who we serve, that we are children of God and that Jesus died to save us. So I'm going to pray. And after I pray, everyone's invited to come to the front tables or the back tables. We also have allergy friendly options for anyone who might need it. And when we come up to the front, you take the bread, you take the drink and you can go back to your seat. The band is going to play and you can think about this and you can contemplate this and uh, and just pray during that time. Okay. So, God, we thank you so much for loving us. We thank you for telling us how we fit in this broken world. We thank you for sending Jesus to die for us, and we receive that sacrifice, and we thank you for it. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.